Amen. Always a blessing to be at Southwest Baptist Church and uh, it's a privilege to be here tonight. When he did ask me uh, about preaching this particular message, I just want you to understand I took it immediately as uh, I grew up with you. I know you. Uh, and if I'm going to ask you to preach, I'd like to have some idea where you're going. <laughs> that, that, that's how I took that specific request. But uh, no, I, um, I do thank the Lord for Brother Jason. And he was a tremendous encouragement to me uh, growing up to stay on track and serve the Lord. And we did go on visitation together. I got to uh, be with him when he was experimenting with his Spanish on bus visitation. And uh, when uh, he was asked how he was one day, he told a man, uh, instead, instead of saying that he was very tired, he said he was very married. <laughs> the words are pretty similar there. And uh, as I've grown older, they're kind of the same thing. I mean, <laughs> somebody said amen, so... Uh, um, uh, okay, we better just preach. All right. <clears throat> I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. If you would please tonight, Matthew chapter 12. We're going to read uh, three verses to get us started here, and uh, then we're going to have prayer and let you be seated. But Matthew chapter 12, verse number 43, verse number 43 is where we're going to start our reading. These are the words of Jesus, and he said this, when the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he is come, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Now, Jesus makes an important statement here at the end of this. He says, even so shall it be also unto this wicked generation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd speak to our hearts tonight. And Lord, would you just communicate to us by your spirit and through your word exactly what you want us to hear and know tonight. And God, I pray that you'd give every a person in here, the courage to respond as you speak to us tonight. Lord, we trust that the fact that you would speak to us is amazing enough, but we trust that if you would speak to us, it's only because you do want us to respond to what you have to say to us tonight. And so, Lord, I pray that we would not just be hearers of the word tonight, but doers also. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. And you may be seated. Matthew 11 through 13 is quite an interesting passage of scripture because Matthew is a gospel that is written to the Jewish people and it's written about their king, uh, their king Jesus. 
starts that way with genealogies in the beginning. And then when you track the preaching that goes on in the early chapters of the Gospel of Matthew, the preaching is always driving home one particular point, and it is this, repent for the kingdom is at hand. Your king is among you. He's here. He's, uh, he's around right now. And you need to repent and change your ways because your king is here. But we know from John chapter 1 that he came unto his own and his own received him not. They, they rejected Jesus as their king. And Matthew 11 through 13 is a passage that kind of outlines, uh, outlines that national rejection of the nation of Israel. And it, it came about in the form of the leaders, the religious leaders of Israel, um, as they stirred up the people, found, they tried to find fault, they were constantly accusing, and ultimately did something that was horrendous. Uh, they accused Jesus of doing good by the power of Satan. And this kind of constituted this formal rejection of who Jesus was. And he responded accordingly. But what's interesting in this passage is that the message that had been preached up until this point in the Gospel of Matthew shifts. And you don't see uh, the preaching anymore of repent for the kingdom of, is at hand, but rather you hear this kind of message. Come all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. The, the preaching is less about a king for the nation of Israel and becomes more about every individual having the opportunity to find rest in the belief of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. And it was afforded us by the rejection of God's people. This was part of God's plan all along. He, he was aware of this. He, he knew this. And Jesus came and set his face like a flint toward Jerusalem, knowing that he was going to the cross, knowing that he was going to give his life and would not be deterred from doing so. However, as we have to read through the, the Gospels and read about this rejection, it's a very ugly thing. The rejection of Jesus by the Jews as, as their Messiah is a very ugly thing to read about. And there are times that they would bring questions to Jesus to try to trap him. And the master teacher would respond with questions of his own. And he would kind of leave them speechless and uh, kind of show them to be the fools that they were. And uh, they, they were trying to publicly drag him down. And time and time again, he just kind of publicly showed who they really were. But in Matthew 11 through 13, it's much more direct than that. It's in these passages that Jesus is going to say things like, ye generation of vipers. And he kind of goes, goes right after them. And, and, and the, 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 the more vehement they become in their rejection of him, the more Jesus shows his rejection of their religion and their belief system. So he actually, in chapter 12, uh, prior to the portion of scripture that we just read as our text a minute ago, um, Jesus uh, in, in 11 and 12 has pronounced woe against them. Um, and then he's kind of refuted the fact that that he's performing miracles and doing good by the power of Satan because he cast out a demon 
And uh, he makes the point that if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? So he makes some points there. And then we come down to verse number 38, where the Bible says, Then certain of the scribes and of the Pharisees answered, saying, Master, we would see a sign of thee. It's a very common uh, tactic of the Pharisees. They would, they would show a form of respect and a form of acknowledgement of Jesus' authority, but they really had no respect for him. They desired no relationship with him. And they said, we would see a sign of thee. Now, go back and read your Bible. You're going to find out they had already seen enough. They had seen miracle after miracle. And Jesus did not perform miracles to show what he could do. He performed miracles to show who he was. In accordance with Old Testament prophecy, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him and had anointed him to, to heal the sick, to give sight to the blind, to give hearing to the deaf, and to open the mouth of the, of the mute. Uh, that was Old Testament prophecy, and Jesus performed those miracles to say, I am the promised one, I am the Messiah, I'm a fulfillment of this prophecy, put your trust in me. He didn't perform miracles to show off. That's not what he was doing. And so they attacked him for his miracles and then had the audacity to ask him for a sign. And Jesus responded very directly, verse 39, but he answered and said unto them, an evil and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. And there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonas. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the well's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? He's saying that there's, there's a miracle coming that you're not going to be able to deny. You're not going to be able to miss this one. The Son of Man is going to be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But he's coming out. There's a sign for you. But then he points out that Nineveh would rise up in judgment against that generation. Because when Jonah went into Nineveh and preached the truth of God, Nineveh repented and believed. And he said the queen of the south would rise up in judgment with or meaning against this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Behold, a greater than Solomon is here. So he's talking about the, the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba that journeyed all the way having heard about Solomon and his wisdom. And so she made, it, made a big journey to come and, and know this wisdom that had come from God that was in this man Solomon. But now uh, one who's greater than Solomon is right there in their midst and they reject him. They didn't have to go on a journey to find him. They didn't have to go on a journey to hear his wisdom. He was right there in their face. But they rejected him. So he said, uh, the people of Nineveh are going to rise up in judgment against you. The queen of the south will rise up in judgment against you. Now, at this point, here's what you need to understand. The scribes and the Pharisees are thinking this thought. Judgment against us? 
There's no judgment coming toward us. How do you know that? How do you know that's what they were thinking? Well, we just got to read the Bible. And we know that Pharisees believed themselves exempt from all judgment of God because they had it down. They had everything in order. They didn't make mistakes. They didn't sin. They were keepers of the law. As a matter of fact, they, they were so good at keeping the law, God's laws weren't enough, so they added their own. I mean, if you just kept God's law, you're doing okay, but we go beyond that. We've made up our own. You know, God said that you, you shouldn't bear a burden and, and do a workload on the Sabbath day. Well, that wasn't enough for the Pharisees. Pharisees said, we got to define burden here. Why? Because a Pharisee had to be able to quantify obedience and disobedience, not in the spirit that a person had toward the law of God and obedience to God, but by the letter. Had to have a letter. We've got to have some, some way in which we can measure our righteousness. So they said, uh, here's what we're going to do. If you carry on the Sabbath day, if you carry a weight that weighs more than half of a fig, you're violating the law of the Sabbath and thereby a wicked sinner against God. Now, let me tell you something. When you set up these kind of laws and these kind of standards, here's what you're doing. You're about to make a big hypocrite out of yourself. And Jesus often was ready to point that out. He was ready to point out their hypocrisy. And he did in the first part of chapter 12. The disciples were walking through a cornfield and, and it was common culture of the day that if somebody was hungry and near a cornfield, they could take a few ears of corn and eat them. And so they're walking through a cornfield. They eat some corn. They're rolling it in their hands. Why in the world would you roll an ear of corn in your hands before you eat it? Silk. Got to get that off. The problem was they didn't wash their hands. And the Pharisees saw that. You say, why were the Pharisees, why did they see that? Because they were watching. They were watching for any kind of violation that they could see so they could point and say, sinner, I watched them. They picked corn rolled that silk off of those ears of corn with their unwashed hands, put that right up to their mouth and defiled themselves. Jesus said, actually what they did was had lunch. <laughs> well, they, they have broken with tradition because they didn't wash their hands. Jesus said, well, uh, why do you break tradition when you do what you do? And then Jesus said, furthermore, it's never what goes into a man that defiles him, but what's already in there and finds its way out. There's sin already in your heart. The influence of evil already abides within you. 
And it's looking for a way out. It's what comes out of your sinful heart that defiles you, not the dirt that goes in when you eat some corn on the cob. So, so imagine how indignant they are at this point that Jesus has suggested that judgment is coming their direction. Their thought is this. We invite inspection. We can stand up to scrutiny. You know why? We're clean. We are doers of the law and we are clean. Please examine us. If you, if you believe you find something wrong, we've got some verse of scripture. We can back it up. And I'm going to tell you, in some ways that sounds good. But Jesus wasn't in favor of that. So he tells a story at the end of this discourse. And what's interesting about it is there's not really an explanation given. The Bible just goes on with the chronology of Jesus' ministry after that. So, so he just kind of drops off this story at the end of conversation after just rebuking them. He, he refers to this uh, story. We don't have any context for it. But we know this, the context demands, this story has something to do with those Pharisees that he just rebuked and the way they were thinking and the way they were judging and the way they were behaving. He said, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, I'm gonna pause right there and say that I did read what a few commentaries had to say about this passage and almost unanimously, they all just kind of jumped to Jesus giving a discourse about demon possession. The problem with that interpretation in my view is there's nothing in the context that says Jesus is going to take a moment here to teach about demon possession. It seems like Jesus is trying to drive home a, another point. That he's got another emphasis in this story that he's telling. Now, 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 no doubt demon possession is on the mind because it's just been dealt with. But Jesus says, when an unclean spirit has gone out of a man, it, uh, he walketh through dry places seeking rest and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he has come, he findeth it and he lists three qualities of the house that he left. Now keep in mind, the house that he left in this story is a person. It's an individual. That's the house that the unclean spirit went out of. He comes back to that person and when he comes back, he finds it empty, swept and garnished. And when he sees that it's empty, swept, and garnished, this spirit says, hey, this is awesome. I've been wandering in, in, in dry places and seeking rest, couldn't find anywhere to reside. Now I come back to my home and I find out that there's nobody living here. This is, there's open quarters here and there's room for more than just me. And so he goes out and he gets seven spirits that are worse than himself and they all come into the man and the last state of that man is worse than the first state of that man. That's the story Jesus tells. And you say, and this isn't about demon possession? 
No, I think Jesus is using the idea to make a bigger point toward Pharisees that see themselves as very clean people. It's not, the, it's not the only time in the Gospels Jesus dealt with this. One day Jesus looked at the Pharisees and said, you're whited sepulchers. In other words, you look real good and pristine on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. It's all exterior. It's all a show. It's not real. You're just acting. You're just going through the routine. And there, listen, there's no doubt in my mind that the Pharisees took great pleasure and satisfaction from the idea that they were righteous. And every time they could say that they were righteous, they got, they got a satisfaction from that. The problem is, it is not a satisfaction that lasts. It's not a satisfaction that remains. It is not a satisfaction that comes from God. That's the worst part of it. It is a self-satisfaction. It's a gratification that comes from when a person says, hey, I have arrived. I have achieved something. I have accomplished something. Look, we see this in sports all the time. Every time somebody thinks they've achieved some great thing, there's this satisfaction, but then it's gone. And the season starts over again. And that's the same kind of false sense of satisfaction that the Pharisees were going through all the time. That's why they were constantly adding new laws because the more rules they had that they could follow, the more feeling that they had that they were righteous. But it was all self-generated. But one thing they could say is once they followed all them rules, obeyed all those do's and don'ts, they could say this, I'm clean. I'm clean. I, all, all of them were hypocrites. Some sincerely hypocrites and some just blatant hypocrites. <laughs> what I mean by that is there were, there were probably some Pharisees that were very sincere and believed they were doing right by their obedience to all the laws and obeying all the do's and don'ts. But none of them could ever convince me that that brought real satisfaction to their life. But they could say they were clean. Some of them could even say they were garnished. You know what garnished means? Decorated. This is one step above clean. Yeah. I, uh, I had a, uh, when I was in Bible college, I had, um, a guy's, my own dorm room, it was rarely clean, but I promise you it was not decorated. There was one time at Christmas every year where girls could come into the guy's dorm to examine their Christmas decorations. And this was about the time my wife and I were dating and she came in and found it empty. You know what? I love white walls. I like them. I don't need a bunch of pictures and all that kind of stuff. I've never really appreciated art. But 
after I got married, my wife started bringing all these decorations in. I'm like, this is pretty nice. I, I like this. And thank God for a wife who keeps the house clean. I'm so thankful for that. Y'all don't know, but I'm thankful for that. But they were, they could say, hey, my life is swept. Oh, and garnished, decorated. I mean, they prided themselves on going, hey, don't I look good? Aren't I doing the right thing? Let me walk out here in the middle of the intersection here and pray as loud as I can. No, that was the Pharisees. I, I, I'm clean and I want everybody to know it. See, the problem wasn't whether they were clean or not or garnished or not. Here's the indictment that Jesus really wanted them to understand. What's it make any difference if you're clean and garnished if you're empty? Clean and garnished and empty means vulnerable. It's a great way to set up for a fall. It might actually make a person more vulnerable than not being clean and garnished. Because clean, garnished, and empty means that you're probably so intent upon looking at your cleanliness and your decoration that you're not watching for the influence that's coming around the block. And let me just tell you, that the, the unclean spirit that Jesus is talking about, understand this, this is not a passage talking about salvation. Nobody is born again by a spirit leaving them. A person is only born again by somebody moving in. And there can be a host of reasons why some sinful, influences, uh, sinful influence leaves a person's life. I mean, sin can rattle a person so hard by its consequences that for a while, somebody says, I'm never going to do that again. I'll never go back there again. But guess what? Sin always circles the block. It comes back around. And you know what it's looking for? It doesn't care if you're clean or not. It doesn't care if you're garnished or not. It wants to know if there's room for it to move back in. And Jesus was saying to the Pharisees here that your problem is yes, you're clean and yes, in a self-righteous sort of way, yes, you're clean and yes, you're garnished and everything on the outside looks good, but there is nothing on the inside and you have no idea how vulnerable you are. There's a great danger in being clean, but empty. Great danger in being clean but empty. A great danger in focusing so much on what people think about me. Kids, will you listen to me tonight? There's a great danger in doing right so that you please your parents. Because what happens when your parents aren't around? What happens when the devil whispers in your ear that your parents will never find out? What's going to keep you clean then? You're vulnerable. 
If it's all about a show for man, if it's all about the attention of other people, if it's all about just checking off a list of do's and don'ts so that you can say, look, I'm, I'm clean. Look at my Christian life. I've got it all together. Let me tell you something. A Christian life is not about do's and don'ts. By the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified. What the Christian life is really about is, listen carefully, not religion, which is always a list of do's and don'ts, in order to please God. We're not talking about that tonight. We're not talking about a, a religion. But what God's looking for is a relationship. He, he, he wants to move in. <laughs> he wants to fill your soul. He wants to fill your life. That his joy might remain with us and that our joy might be full. He wants us to have peace that passes, under, uh, passes understanding, joy unspeakable, full of glory, abundant life. He wants our life to be so full of him that there's no room for any unclean spirits, any unholy influences. That when sin decides to come knock on the door, sin finds that that house is occupied. And yes, it's clean. And yes, it's garnished because the one who's living there keeps it clean and keeps it decorated for his glory. But there's no room because Jesus fills every bedroom. Jesus fills every closet. Jesus fills the, the laundry room and every square foot of our house. We're so full in our relationship with Jesus that there's no room for any unclean influence in our life. That's what he wants. That's what he desires. And if you don't know this, please, I, I, I hope you'll learn it. There is a big difference between relationship and religion. You will never accomplish relationship through religion. It doesn't work that way. We don't get relationship with God by do's and don'ts. If we're not careful, we get this whole thing backwards. All you got to do is go to 1 John and read in 1 John. The whole purpose of 1 John chapter 1 is to tell us that what God wants from us is fellowship with him. Fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, and with one another. And John said there was a time when we saw Him with our eyes, we heard Him with our ears, we handled Him with our hands. But listen, all of that, those references to His senses were past tense. Do you know why? Because Jesus wasn't in their midst anymore. But when He talks about fellowship, He uses present tense. Because Jesus doesn't have to be with me physically for me to have relationship with him. He lives in me. He's promised to never leave me nor forsake me. And he helps me day by day. I, I, made, the, I made the comment yesterday. 
that there, uh, to someone. There, there's too many people, in, in my opinion, and I, I see this as, as a pastor, there's too many people that are looking for guidance and they're not looking for the guide. Pastor, uh, I'm, I'm, I've been reading and reading in my Bible to find out what to do in this decision. I, look, if I say that's a bad thing, you're, gonna, you're not gonna see that. It's not a bad thing for us to be in the Bible. But here's what we forget sometimes. We're too busy looking for guidance in the decisions that we're making. And what we need to realize is that we need to just back off from making any decisions for a second until we know that the relationship with the guide is where it ought to be. And my Bible tells me that if I trust in the Lord and I'll acknowledge Him in all of my ways, that He will direct my paths. My Bible tells me that if I will submit and surrender my body a living sacrifice unto Him, that He can show me what is His good, perfect, and acceptable will. Now that doesn't come through do's and don'ts. That comes through relationship. Where he's in my life, I'm surrendered to him and he's calling the shots. And I'm talking to him and I'm listening. Have we forgot he's real? God is real. You can talk to him and he'll talk back. (laughs) I'm talking about something real. I'm talking about a relationship. A relationship as real as the relationship with that, that I have with my friends, that I have with my wife. Can you imagine something with me tonight? Can you imagine if somebody came up to me and said, uh, Pastor, I want to throw, throw a theory your way. Okay, let's hear your theory. I have a theory that your wife is not real. <laughs> that she doesn't exist. I would say immediately, without having to think about it, I reject your theory. You know why? Because I talked to her today. I heard her today. I saw her today. She she was with me today. You can't convince me she's not real. Because I experienced her today. Well, then why can't it be that way with Jesus? He's as real as my wife is. And I heard from him today. Amen. And I talked to him today. Right. And I experienced him today. And here's what I find. Because I don't want anybody to misunderstand this. Please don't misunderstand this. It's not that being clean is not important. That's right. Good point. Living a righteous life is incredibly important. But there is nobody, there is nobody that lives a righteous life so that they can have relationship with God. First John says it's the other way around. That I walk in the light as he is in the light. And what it does is that light shows me where I need some cleaning. Okay, so then you clean up. No, you still missed it. I just agree with God about what needs to be cleaned. And I'm willing to confess it as sin and repent of it and change. And if I confess my sin, he is faithful and just to forgive me my sin and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. That's what the Bible says. 
Now, if I'm reading that right, and I've read it a bunch of times, I don't clean up to have relationship with God. I submit to have relationship with God and he cleans me up. Now that's true cleanliness. And then when he gets us clean, he starts decorating. No, I mean this. Um, I've been around Pharisees. It's hard for a Pharisee to smile for anyone else's benefit. <laughs> it's hard for a Pharisee to really think about anybody but themselves. It's hard, to, it's hard for a Pharisee to acknowledge the righteousness in someone else because that's an affront to their own personal righteousness. It, it, it's, hard for, it, it's hard for a Pharisee, if I can just be honest about this, it's hard for a Pharisee to be truly happy unless they're criticizing somebody cutting them up pretty good. That's a sick happiness right there. No, I mean that. That's a sick happiness. When the greatest joy you get out of life is from cutting somebody up, criticizing somebody else who's doing the best they can. That's, that's, that's a sickness. That's a, that's a problem. No matter how clean they think they are, it looks pretty ugly. There's no joy in a Pharisee. There's no peace in a Pharisee because they're constantly wondering what people are thinking about them. They're constantly defending themselves. Constantly always having to try to be better and be better and be better. You know what I love about Jesus? That God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He showed the greatest love that anyone could ever show for me when there was nothing lovely about me. Nothing lovely about me. Um, I talked to the kids a second ago. I want to talk to you again, kids. You ought to want to be clean. But you ought to desire to be clean because it's pleasing to God. And because in your relationship with God, God is showing you what he wants in your life and you're surrendered to that. Because the truth is, if, if you're just doing it not to get in trouble from mom and dad, what, what happens when you're out of the house? What happens when, when mom and dad aren't exercising the discipline anymore in your life? That's why a lot of teenagers become rebellious is because, and people look at them and go, man, as younger kids, they were just, they were so good. They were just little angels when they were kids. Somebody said about when kids being angels that as the legs grow longer, the wings grow shorter. Maybe that's true. But what? What if it's actually this? What if, what if that kid's been taught to obey, not to embarrass mom and dad? To do good because of this reason or that reason. And they've not been taught, listen, my greatest desire is for you to just have a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
And if that's your heart and you really want to have a relationship with him, he will show you what you do that's wrong. And if you'll admit it, he wipes it away and you get to go on. You get to learn from it and then go on and continue in relationship with God because his blood cleanses you from all sin. Yeah. Now, he went on to say, my, my little children, these things write unto you that ye sin not. This isn't some free pass to sin because God's grace will take care of it. No. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. He doesn't say, if any man sin, pull out the law books, refresh yourself on all the do's and don'ts, and then get back in line. He doesn't say that. He says, if you sin, you have an advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Did you hear who's actually righteous? It's Jesus Christ. He's the one that's really clean. He's the one that's really garnished. And he's the one that wants to fill our lives. I mean, if we pull up to that source and say, this is where I want to draw my life from right here. This is the fountain that I want to drink from. I'm telling you, if you get a taste of drinking of that fountain, you will find that is what life was meant to be. That is what life is all about. And when somebody comes and offers you a dingy, cloudy glass of disgusting water, there's not even a thought in your mind that you're going to take a sip out of that. Why would I do that when I'm full from the fountain right over here? College students, following all the rules, you're clean. Not one write up, no hours this semester. I'd say that's clean and garnished. As a matter of fact, if anybody asks someone on campus about you, and by the way, this is, I'm not just talking about Heartland campus, I'm talking about any campus. Just talking to college students here. If someone asks somebody on campus about you, they'd say, oh, fine Christian. Got it together. I mean, that person really has it together. But it really doesn't matter what somebody says about your Christian life. If you know you hadn't been in your Bible for relationship with God in three or four weeks. I mean, just having relationship with Jesus Christ. And you haven't spent earnest time in prayer saying, God, search me, know my heart, try me, know my thoughts, see if there be any wicked way in me, cleanse me, lead me in the way everlasting. That's, that's relationship with God. That's what it actually looks like. I, I just taught in Sunday school this past Sunday morning about prayer, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. So many times we think prayer is running, running up to God like he's some kind of ATM machine and making a withdrawal because we have a need. But that's not prayer. Why don't we spend time just adoring him for who he really is? Amen. Having some relationship with him and confessing our sin and telling him what we're thankful for. Here, here's what I found in my own personal prayer life. That if I'll spend time adoring and thanking God, my supplication list goes down. That's 
When you, you, I mean, you just find out that when you express contentment to God for what he's given you, you have less to ask him for. <laughs> and boy, when he does answer prayers, that's just the sweetness of relationship with God. So sweet. So really, does it matter if everybody in your dorm if it, does it really matter if every member of your household thinks that you're the best Christian that ever walked on the face of the earth? If you know that that relationship with Jesus Christ is not what it needs to be. Because what they see might be clean and garnished, but you know it's way emptier than it should be. And because of that, you're very vulnerable to unclean spirits and influences. Adults, you didn't think I was going to give you a pass, did you? Please don't, please don't look this way and say, you know what, I've lived long enough. I'm, I'm not concerned about this. It doesn't matter how old you are. You ought to be concerned about this. We ought to do some personal inventory to say, is my relationship with Jesus what it ought to be? Because if we just drift into clean and garnished and that's enough, man, we're just setting ourselves up for a pretty big fall. You know where real satisfaction is? Real satisfaction is fulfilling the purpose for which we were created. Do you know what purpose we were created for? To walk with God. Fellowship with him. He came walking in the garden in the cool of the day for a reason because he wanted fellowship with mankind. And that fellowship requires holiness and it requires righteousness and it requires us to be clean in his sight. But you don't achieve that by do's and don'ts. You only get there by real relationship with Jesus Christ. That's it. That's the question. Are you empty? You can be full. He still fills souls and hearts and lives with meaning and purpose and every good thing, but he is the only source of it. So in parting in this conversation, he just kind of dropped this to the Pharisees. You don't know how vulnerable you are. In your mind, you're so clean, you're so garnished, but you're so empty. And I don't believe he said that with hatred. I believe he said that with concern. And I can also tell you this, Nicodemus found this was true, that even a Pharisee can get saved. Even a Pharisee can have relationship with Jesus. And man, what they find in him beats anything that Pharisaism ever had. So satisfying. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would bless your word tonight. And God, I don't know how you might speak to hearts and lives tonight, but I believe you're capable of doing that by your spirit through the word. And Lord, I pray that you would use this invitation time to bring honor and glory to yourself. God, if there's somebody that needs to respond in prayer tonight to something you've spoken to their heart about, God, I pray that you'd give them that courage to respond. Maybe there's, 
Maybe there's somebody here tonight who's trapped in a do's and don'ts religion and they just need to trust in Jesus for salvation. I pray that they would get that matter settled tonight. And Lord, if there's some Christian here tonight that's just been trying to, trying to keep up appearances, then God, I pray that they would, they would drop that as a priority in their life and that they would prioritize a true and genuine relationship with Jesus. And it's in his name I pray, amen.